Hey, this is Kevin Monroe for episode 8 of the Shellshock Podcast. Welcome to Shellshocked, a pretty freaking awesome TMNT podcast. My name's Josh, and with me we have Andrew, Colton, Karen, Jeff, and Isaac. On this episode, we have a very awesome guest, Kevin Monroe. He was the writer-director of the 2007 Ninja Turtles film titled TMNT. How you doing, Kevin? I'm doing fantastic, guys. How are you? Good. Uh, we're doing pretty awesome. Doing good. Straight chilling. So, all good. So before we before we get into everyone's uh, turtle questions and everything, uh, we were kind of wondering, uh, you know, last week you said something about uh, doing some filming or whatever. What are you up to right now? Uh, right now, actually, I'm I'm spending quite a bit of time up in uh, Vancouver. Um, there's actually an announcement. When was it? it was on Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday. Uh, they released um, this trailer for uh, Sly Cooper, uh, an adaptation of Sly Cooper PlayStation game. And I signed on to uh, write and direct that uh, with his company Blockade and uh, in Rainmaker up here in Vancouver. And so I'm just kind of finishing up the script on that now, and we've just been sort of working on that test trip. And uh, and then I'm also directing on the uh, Red Shot Mike movie for them too. So it's kind of a two for up here, and we're just doing this kind of work. So. That's fantastic. Yeah, actually. Um, yeah. Uh, my girlfriend's playing uh, a Sly Cooper game in the other room, like right now. So oh, that's, that's so uh, it's a fun. It's just a fun dynamic. I just like and the mechanic of it, and the, and the, whenever they just nail it, it's just like there's something really pleasing about the whole thing. Oh wow! No, uh, yeah, that, it's always been uh, pretty cool looking. I like watching her play it. Um, so so yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, if you don't mind, we're gonna uh, jump into some uh, turtle questions regarding uh, the sure. 2007 film. Uh, Andrew, if you'd like to go first. Certainly, certainly. All right, it's, it's a big, big pleasure to finally talk to you, Kevin. And you too, uh, sir. Thank you. We've exchanged a few messages over the years, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure we even crossed paths at San Diego one time. I was like, is that? It is. <laughs> and then you were gone. But to my question, <laughs> to my question, it's, it's no mystery there's a lot of obstacles in the way of making a Turtles movie. Like, you've got yeah. the studio wanting things a certain way. You know, you got playmates chiming in, and then there's the whole thing about being contractually obligated to stay within a PG rating, which has always been a little confusing to me, because it's like, what, with a movie about ninja teenagers, it can't be okay for teens, but whatever. Which brings us to my first question. If you had been given carte blanche to make your TMNT movie with no interference whatsoever, nobody telling you you have to do this, or put in this, or stay within this, um, balls to the walls, no one stopping you, what would that movie have, have been like? You, you know, it's funny because it's, it's, the team is a really funny situation too. Because there's, I mean, there's so many factors. I mean, like you're absolutely right on top of all those factors. Um, you also had the factor of like right. studios, and then, and then Harvey got involved, and then and then Warner Brothers yeah. to a lesser extent in the development of it. But it was definitely turned to like a Harvey production at the end. And um, and so my answer to it is like I'd love to say that it would be like radically different, but honestly, there was something in that I, it, that I wanted to do originally that was reflected in earlier drafts of the script. There's so many different ways to say it because I, I couldn't say that it would be completely different. I think in the end, uh, what happened is in order to make it 
palatable to the audiences that they need to. Like you were mentioning, there's just things that, you know, even though it is ninjas and they are teenagers, it was still a franchise that most of the world knows as a, you know, a 2D cartoon. That's like really kiddish. Right. And, and it's not, it's not through any fault of its own because they didn't even know that those things existed. So the, the funny part is, is that then when you get people who are going to be sinking in like, you know, like, I think both of them went for like half the budget. So they were like 12 plus million dollars each and they want to hedge their bets. And so what happens is, they bring in, you know, sort of the quote-unquote expertise to put more humor into it. And they always use, like, these buzzwords, you know, like, sort of, and then we have to, like, key things up. But, like, there's even, so it's anywhere from, like, big things to, like, in terms of the intensity of the action and the intensity of the characters um, to small things. Like, um, everybody thought, for instance, regardless of what anyone's, you know, opinion was of sort of, like, the meta story of that, like, with the backstory and all the Aztecs. Because, again, like, Pete was, like, a huge Aztec fan, and we were, like, really playing into that. And that was, like, it was really fun in its infancy of that. But then what happens is then you get a really nice, sort of sophisticated plot, and then you have a bunch of people who want to spoon feed it to a younger, well, it's a younger, to a broader demographic, right? And so then all of a sudden you have what we had as a really great, for instance, like mid-act two reveal of who our bad guy was with like really nicely, cleverly planned dialogue along the way. So it wasn't transplanted to, hey, let's just give the backstory all up in the front, which is, you know, whatever. It's one way to go because I can't say it's a bad idea because you look at movies like The Mummy and every other movie, especially like for the last 10 years before that movie, all started their movies like that. So it's like, it's funny. So it's across the board to so even things like the Leo Raphite the initial draft of it had, like, you know, like, Rathsai coming within, like, honestly, I might have been, like, a half centimeter. I'm doing that because I'm in Canada, I'll say centimeter, but it was a quarter inch of, uh, of his eyeball. Uh, and then MPA, for instance, got to a point where we just, we moved it back six inches, and then we put the side down, and they were like, we don't even want to see the side, and then we can push it back. And then, and then, you know, even, like, you know, where you look at, like, Leo chasing Raph, again, there's, if there's one section of the film that's probably the closest and that really hadn't changed since our storyboard, it was probably, like, the core of what the Leo Raph fight was. There's, there's some hints of some dialogue that kind of got, like, thrown in, like, as time went on. But, like, the, the intensity of it and the idea that there was a whole movie that was set up to pay off with this confrontation, the idea of like how do you show that passion, how do you show that intensity, but through brotherhood, right? And so that was sort of the big that was the big crux moment of that. So it was little things like that. Even when Leo was chasing him, and we had throwing stars, and it was like it was so great. And they're always like really awesome, like silhouettes. They would land, and like you know, like a silhouette would land in the rain, and the lightning would strike, and it was all. And then they were like, no, you can't have throwing stars. And so you're like, well, what can you throw? And they're like, well, it's as long as it's something that kids can't replicate at home. Which apparently, I guess every kid oh, has geez. like shurikens like hanging out, like going <laughs> <laughs> to the backyard and find one and throw it at their sisters. Well, exactly, and then all of a sudden you get a bunch of, uh, you know, like railway-looking ties because they're kind of pseudo-safe. So you try to do your best, and you tie on a really cool, like, you know, sort of try to do something, like, ornamental. But really, at the end of the day, you're already sort of taking your job. So it's a really interesting thing. So, you know, it's sure I got it. It's a long answer ever, but there's a lot of factors in it, you know, and so I think the intention of what the movie was wouldn't be much different. It was still, to me, always about... All of the doodads aside, as far as like the intensity and the and the violence, and the action and the, and the you know the language, that's still sort of window dressing to me because the core of what I thought that I wanted to bring to that was like a really I want to make a story of brothers and 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 basically then have at the middle of this like fantastic thing about mutated turtles and teenagers and and and, and you know ninjas and all this other stuff. It's all basically about brothers, and that to me was like the the only reason I wanted to do it. And and it's just everything else ends up sort of getting sort of paying for it along the way, you know, and so it's interesting that you have to sort of balance all these things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I've always lauded the, the family aspect of the film. It's it's very strong and it really 
really brings it to life. Yeah, Do you and, think and, we'll and, ever? S- oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and then you know, even the family aspect that you look at the family aspect, and and I think there's something interesting if you can make something. Now looking back, if I wanted to really like sort of postmodern, postmodern, uh, <laughs> a few years later, uh, the idea of the family aspect's strong, but it has to be offset by something that sort of cleverly hides a little bit more, sort of makes it a bit more of a theme rather than something that's not on your face. Because usually, especially in the world of, of CG, everybody wants to make it sort of as broad as, as possible. So whenever you have a movie that somebody wants to make broad that you're saying, oh, it's about family, then all of a sudden it turns into, like, Meet the Robinsons or something, right? And so then it becomes something that's a little more, like, overt with, like, hey, it's fun to be a family and blah, 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 which is, again, all great stuff, but... Whenever you're talking about the tone of what an Ninja Turtle thing is, and that's whenever you can sort of take conflicting things, you know, and not everyone's been on the same page and stay one percent. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, next question I probably have is, uh, where would you have been keen on going in a sequel? I know uh, Shredder was going to appear; it was pretty heavily foreshadowed, and there was, <laughs> there was also a, there was also like a teaser poster that was apparently sent to Laird by Imaji with uh, Michelangelo, like. Dealing with his brothers demutating into regular turtles and, you know, shredding yeah. the background. It was, you know, it was funny because, um, his, and so if you, you want to continue to talk about how difficult it is just to get a movie done in general, right? Like, it's generally a miracle if anything gets made, regardless, good or bad or whatever. Like, yeah. you can't even look at, like, you know, like, Paul Pabuettis and, like, he's like, the, the, oh. the dude is not just for getting stuff done, you know? And you're like, it's like, like we fall, whatever you want to say, he gets a movie done, and you're like, it's, it's a small miracle like this, right? <laughs> Look how so, long again, that movie took. I mean, from '93 yeah. to 2007. Uh, and so the and and so the uh, and so on top of that, we also had like this startup company, Amaji, that was like it was really like just spit and duct tape, and people just lived there and lived the movie and loved it. Like it was every like it was it was there was this period where it was like so fresh and it was like startup, and it was before too many people noticed or cared. You know what I mean? So it was a really cool thing where it was. Everybody on the same. There was a real great spirit, and there's. And I still have cuts of the film that you look at, and it's just got a completely different vibe to it because it's sort of a different. It was sort of allowed to be innocent in, in its own. I remember. I remember going and seeing Warner Brothers. Uh, Warner Brothers set up to go see uh, uh, Batman Begins, and I remember walking out of that company. Oh my God, we were so in that flavor because like we really were. Like and we had, we didn't. Uh, we had uh, Marco Bertrami doing music on it. It was like much more like harder sort of uh, percussive like an all their sounding soundtrack and stuff and so and it was just and again then the stuff that cost it is beautiful and I've done a bunch of things with cost and so but it's just like the intent of what that was going in so um, but, and again so for the sequel then when it got to that now you've got a company that had a number one movie and all of a sudden you know everyone starts caring a little bit too much about the company thinking that like everyone's getting involved and so by the time they actually did that pitch I wasn't a part of that Ninja Turtles pitch I had a deal to write the oh. sequel, and basically just paid me to not write the sequel. So I was like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, okay, I guess. Like, you can't afford something that is like you work on something, because at the end of the day, if they're not going to support you, they're not going to, like, say that that's what they want, then, you know, whatever. That's, that's, that's their deal. It's great. Yeah. But, so, but, yeah, so my plan for the sequel that we had talked about was that, again, trying to continue on. And we, was, our, we did have plans to do, not plans, I mean, it's, it's like you would have lunch, and we would go out and, like, sort of, like, roughly be putting stuff together. When it looked like Gotcha Man was, like, really sailing, we really started putting, like, a lot of sort of plans together. Like that, um, Todd Tanaka and I, who... Uh, who worked on that as well. And so, and it was all about Mikey and the idea of Mikey, Mikey wanting to step up and Mikey wanting to do more and Mikey trying to find his place and not 
being happy with his stereotype, basically, of who he was. And so we had this event where he just ran away and joined the circus, but he ran away and joined the flip. And, and, and the whole adventure oh. went to Japan, and it was, it was supposed to then re-enter Shredder. You're going you're gonna to kill me on this, because I'm, I'm not going like, to mess up at some point what the actual genealogy is. But then we had a plan to then detail, uh, to then parlay that in the movie into an act two that started like the city of war set up and then coming back to that where okay. we basically would start it in, in, in Tokyo and then we'd bring it back to uh, to, uh, to New York for that for the culmination yeah and it was supposed to totally be a shredder origin story and there was actually a moment where we wanted to have That's Mikey cool. this could be totally hand-sensitive but we wanted to have Mikey take off his bandana and he puts on a black bandana whenever he joins the foot and I was just like a little, I was like, that would just be so cool. This is sort of his moment where he, where he willingly cool. like shaves his head or gets a tattoo or whatever, you know, whatever they would do, like, you know, in, in a harder edge movie. But like, what you know, this real idea that he just, it's all about loyalty and it's all about, you know, everyone having a place and everyone having, and so it was really fun. And it was like a way to sort of bring that and, and, and yet it wasn't supposed to be necessarily as jammed in at the end as it was on, on the other one, but it was a, a decent way to sort of tease it. Everyone thought so. I, I dig yeah. it. I mean, the first one's about family. The second one would be about loyalty and fitting in. Yeah, no, and, and it was really sort of trying to figure out. And then how. I, and what I love about um, uh, some of the Nickelodeon series at that now is I really like the focus on like some of the Mikey and Donnie stuff of the episodes that I've seen. Like it, it just feel, and that was sort of what we were feeling because we had we had built such a movie around Leo and Raph that I thought it was going to be really fun to go and you know, and not even call them the B crew, but the idea of showing is actually four A members, and that was the thing that we really wanted to. To prove with the sequel was that there's it's four yeah. superstars because they always get kind of tucked in the back like the kids at the kitty table and that's always such a bummer because you know if it was uh, if it was uh, the Great Escape or whatever like everybody deserves a purpose. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I, I read a lot of the organism. You know? I read a lot of bitching and whining about the fourth movie about uh, oh it's so Leo and Raph centric and stuff and it's like well that's you know the other brothers have their their moments to shine but I mean. It, it, it's not yeah. so bad that that's finally coming to a crux. I mean, that's I never read a problem. exactly. Well, and that's the thing. Like, treat it with a with that's that what reality. Are. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as long as it comes from character, then it always seems true to their world. It just feels like that's the peak into their world that we're getting. All right. Last question for me, and we'll move on to the others. Um, gotta ask. Uh, it's a lot has been leaked. I mean, literally in the last couple of days here, uh, all the hoopla going on about the Michael Bay produced movie. Uh, I guess the fifth Turtles movie, which is going to be a reboot. Um, uh, broadly speaking, what are your thoughts and concerns on it from what is known? Ah, God, it's so funny. Uh, what do I think about it? Um, I'm excited to see it. I really do want to see it. There's still something that even at, it's just, you know, I think what it is is, because um, I know Galen was attached to it for a while. I know he's still involved in it. But Galen, who was a producer on yeah, on the two thousand. Yeah, you know, Galen. so I mean, so and I know he was involved with Scott um, on it, and uh, and then eventually uh, Pride and Dunes really you know took sort of the lead on it. It sounded like, um, but uh, and so it was weird because like for the first bit, like, I didn't want Ed to know anything about it. You know, like it's sort of this like I just don't even want to know about the new one. <laughs> but then, <laughs> right, but right. what was really cool about it is um, having. Uh, kids now uh, who are now it's funny because my two oldest at the time who were going through it they were like they were like okay Ninja Turtle fans but then now that the younger ones are coming up and they're like five or so that they that they look at you know the new series and that's all they want to watch it's all they want to watch it's all they want to play and so what's funny is they couldn't give a crap about my Ninja Turtles but they really love Nickelodeon one right which is like how do you hate that and so in oh, the yeah, same way to, to send that same thing I'm not going to say my daughter freaking loves it 
Right, no, exactly, right? And there's something to it. Yeah. And, and so I think to that same end, the strength of that property is that it can be envisioned by so many people. And, and I think you can say, like, this one's good, that one's better, you can rank them. Or at the same time, there's, there's something to it. And I'm not to say that that's a free pass for everybody to come by and do their crappy version of it. But at the same time, it just feels like I think it speaks to the strength of that story. And so to that end, if they stay true to it, and I think that's cool. And so, and then looking at the images, I mean, they, they look cool. Uh, that I know they're going to be great. I know they're going to look aggro to me. I just would want to make sure that they stay on character. And that would be the one thing is that if it does feel that if, if they don't stay true to the character stuff, that would be the one disappointing to me. Is that it's just really getting like a nice sense of who these guys are and layered and not necessarily like, you know, because I know, I know the, the, the worry is that they'll turn into like supporting Transformer characters, which are like really broadly stroke, like sort of Phantom Menace level, of, you know, slash like racism slash whatever you want to fill in the blank to like sort of describe it. Right? Overshadowed so, by the human characters would be a No, exactly, concern, right? Yeah, right? totally. I want, let's just get to Megan Fox because she'll look really hot. And so, <laughs> and so, so at the same time, I'm looking even at those four core designs, I think over the last, um, whatever, whatever, how many days ago it was, um, the one good thing is that they were doing the same thing we were doing, which is like you go and, and even do them in the clothing series, which is you know you do the broader eyes for Mikey, so they're a little more doe-like and childlike, and then and then wraps are more focal focus in the center, so they're more predator eyes. Um, Donnie had a bit higher of a forehead because he's obviously more serious, like little things like that, you know. And so I love those little design cues and and looking at it, even though I don't know if I would put pants on the turtles, but you look at them and you go, they're still trying to speak the character at least in the way that they're doing the character, or so or at least in the way they did the visual. So, I'm in. I'm interested. I think it'll be fun to see. Right? What about the the fact that there, this is the first movie without without any involvement from uh, from uh, Peter? Or, well, I guess Kevin's involved in a in a side. Yeah, exactly. And, and who knows how much play those guys right have? Yeah, and it's and what's really funny. Like, and what, what's cool is you look at like the um, the four kids series. I mean, that just feels like that's like. If like Peter Laird burped, that's what would come out, right? It's like it's so true, to, and it's so it's so Petery, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like it's like how it's detailed and carrying the arcs over the episodes, and he's really into that like long form and spinning that whole story and, and all the details and stuff. And 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 then this is interesting because I just I, I it doesn't feel like this comes from sort of either one of those points, and so and, and I know we were trying to do like our own kind of like tribute to the spirit of it. Without, while still kind of putting a spin on it, you know, pastel, whatever, but like that was at least the intention. But this looks like it's just going for broke and just trying to, it's like, hey, moving forward, these are what we call Ninja Turtles. And it seems like it'll be improbable, but at the same time, I totally would have expected that from Transformers if, if we look back and I'm like, oh, Transformers flopped away that one. I think, of course, they did, the straight to car, you know, whatever it is, but they didn't. They reimagined it. And so as a fan, it's cool that that many people are going to be into it, but I don't know. All right, Kevin, that's all from me. Uh, thanks, man. I'll pass. I'll pass the mic. Can I uh, can I jump right. in here, guys? Then. Yeah, definitely. Cool. No, I, I uh, uh, Kevin. This is uh, Isaac from uh, from Canada. So welcome to Canada for. Thank you. <laughs> being up here. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, Dude, it's cold out here. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's freezing. It's been a crazy winter. I even hear uh, it's. It's cold down south too this year. No, it is. I mean, I think it's down, but it's funny, you know, because I grew up in New Brunswick for the most mm-hmm. part, and then I went down and I've been in California for like almost 95 maybe until just the past like year or so. 
And then I turned into such a wuss. I like I stepped yeah. off the plane and I lost my lungs. Well, and, and the scary thing is that it's only Vancouver, so it's like kind of like just yeah, which is such a topic the, anyway. The world feels like. <laughs> yeah. no, no, but it doesn't matter. I just turned into such a puss. Like I just can't like I can't handle any of this stuff. Well, welcome back anyway. And, yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> no, it's cool, man. It's great to to, to finally hear your voice. And um, no, I I thought maybe I'd jump in here because uh, I'd love to to get you to. Sh- some of your stories of uh, of the early process, so it's kind of like chronological here, um, of yeah. when because because just the the way you you got in with Galen, um, as he told us, is it's just such a, a neat story of, of a happy accident. It's just so crazy. You guys met how you met. So if you could if you could explain all, all how that how that went down and what was it like to 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 be be all of a sudden thrust into that world very quickly. That's true, yeah. No, actually, now that I'm more experienced now, so I look back and go, and I'll completely, like, imagine it differently. Like, they were lucky to have me. I allowed myself. No, it was, it was totally, it was, it was, uh, leading up to that, I'd, like, worked in video games and comics, and then eventually just started, um, just trying to write my own stuff, and then that led to me, like, doing about a year and a half or so, two years of pilot, um, like, Disney Warner Brothers, and, and nothing ever went, but I sort of became, like, like, a voice action guy, and if they would, like, option rights to, like, Chasing them in the Arab box, you know, like an Oni press book or something, then they bring me in to direct like a 2D animatic pilot or something for it, if it would go on. And so that's when I met Gail and the guys at um, Amaji, and they were doing this thing called Cattail at the time, which I know everyone kind of knows about. But it was, it was, it was almost like Amaji's attempt to be Pixar, you know? And so they were, they were trying to do a really cutesy kind of animal comedy. And it was exactly what you think. It was a cat who was raised to think he was a dog. Hilarity ensues, blah blah blah, right? And so, but it was they needed like a comedy pass on it, and they needed basically this. They wanted to sort of bring it together as a film. So I just met Gail, and we got along really well. And um, I don't know what it says, but we still get along really well. So, um, and and so he asked me to come in, and I basically headed up storyboards. I put together the story reel for that, and uh, helped. Uh, I think it was uh, whoever was directing it. And uh, and then while I was there, then I caught wind that they were talking to. Uh, Peter and Gary about the rights to turtles. And then at the time I was, I mean, I'm still hungry now, but at the time I was like, I was, I just remember all I saw that all I wanted to do was just like latch onto that project. And just like, I want, like I saw it, I knew that was, that was like mine. I just wanted to, so I just went in every day and I bugged him, I bugged him, I bugged him, I was going. And one of the first scenes I pitched, he and Tom Gray, I remember was like in a conference and I told them about the Raph and Leo fight and I really wanted to do this thing. So from its inception, that moment, it sort of existed always until we, you know, and then we sort of ended up trying to, I just basically tried to build a movie to justify that whole scene, I think, looking back now. And so, um, so I bugged them, bugged them, bugged them. And at the time they had, and I'm going to blank on his name, and I'm just such an asshole for doing it. Um, the guy who wrote the first Ninja Turtle movie. Um, uh, I'm going to tell everybody else who's fandom. I'm sorry. Todd yeah, Todd, yeah. And so Todd, yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. And so Todd, they brought Todd back in because, again, it was really incestuous because Tom Gray, who was the president of the Maji, had produced the original Ninja Turtles. He was like real old school um, Ninja Turtles. And he brought in Todd, and he was already there whenever I got there. And so I started working with him sort of in a director capacity, um, just sort of talking about things. And I bent, uh, actually, actually, back stuff. So I, and I, so I basically bugged Tom and Galen enough. And they said, okay, fine, we're going up to see Peter. And uh, and come on out and do your spiel if you want. So I went out and I met Peter in Northampton, who is a really cool dude. And he's just, he, I just like people who just march, march to the beat of Donald Trump and, 
And he's definitely one of those people. And I think it's really cool. And we went down, we talked. And what's funny is we, we talked a little bit in their offices, and their offices, and I don't know if you guys have seen it, but like they're, they're, they're really, you would never guess it's like Turtle Central, right? Like really, you think it's there should be a big golden, like solid gold turtle statue on the front and marble floor. And it's not. It's like card tables and wood paneling and stuff. Like that. Very simple. And it's, and it's like beer. It's like, it's like I just have what I need, and I put, I, I spend intentional behind me again. So I go there and I uh, and I talk a little bit about business and then basically Peter's like, you want to go for a walk? And we just basically walked for hours and just talked about life and everything else and talked a little bit about the movie but then just talked about just like our attitudes about stuff and then went back and uh, and I brought my issue one that I had had um, that I didn't get in 84 but I would have gotten maybe around the late 80s and I wish I could take it but then in 88, 89 like in the years then. and I um and I, uh, and, and so I basically figured out because I thought if I don't, because I, and I, I knew I could get Kevin's signature because I knew a lot of people at the same time we had met before, but I had never met Pete before. So I thought if I can get Peter's signature on, even if I don't get the job, I'll get like a TMNT number one sign. And that's really freaking cool. <laughs> and so I gave it to him. He's like, oh yeah, that's cool. So he signed it. Carol and I got in the car. And then as we were driving back to the airport, I opened it up. And then it was, he said, dear Kevin, make a good movie or else. Gurr, and you find Peter Laird, drew a picture of Raphael. So that was that was how I found it. I got the gig to direct it, which was kind of cool because it was basically he controlled everything. So like Peter was the gatekeeper. So it was a very cool moment. Very awesome. No, it That's must a have been long ass story, man. I'm sorry about that. That's like a oh, not at all. No, I, it's great for you to, to share it now because it really is a, a a neat moment for for you to have, uh, like you say, coming in as a fanboy and then coming oh, almost. I don't mean that a drug yeah. whatsoever, but you, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a moment. Yeah. And I, I know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when, when you were working um, with, I was going to jump on something you mentioned earlier. Did you, did you continue working? Was that something that, that he was still part of? Or do you continue? Oh, I'm sorry, dude. You broke up. Nope. You can broke you up a little bit. Could you? No, I can barely. You just broke up a little bit. Could you say that again? Oh yeah, no, I was just saying. Uh, you, I was just going to jump on the fact that you were talking about uh, Todd Langman being part of that. Did uh, Did you work with him more? Yeah, we did. Oh, so yeah, then we came back and I worked with Todd. And again, Todd Todd was he was doing like a great job. And there was another take on the story. And um, I can't remember the story. I actually have it. Like it's in the storage. I've got like all the drafts. Um, but we had that original version, and then he and I were going back and forth and going to Peter with stuff, and and I think I was being drawn. It was just like it was just like a different like narrative structure. I couldn't even tell you what the difference was between like the story that I wanted to tell and and where the script had sort of been headed before I got there. And then eventually, I just like sort of was kept on bringing up suggestions, and then eventually they just brought me in and asked me if I wanted to write it as well because I already sort of had this relationship growing with Peter as well. So, so we ended up doing that. And, and looking back, it was like I think it was a really easy way for them to kill two birds with one stone. I mean, it's a really hard, it's a hard relationship to build whenever you because I've done this a lot, and we're still dealing with it now, even with like Ratchet and Frank and Sly, where you have like rights holders who like really have a strong control over the rights and have a and rightfully so by the way that they can sit back and say, no, it should be like this, it should be like this. But sometimes you get situations where, like, everything is controlled, and this is one of the situations that, like, to get the rights. Like, like Peter had a lot of input on it. So it was it was really important to come in and make sure that 
you know, there was a relationship that was built that was like, you know, like a trustworthy relationship. And, and so it was a really easy way for them to focus everything and then we could build on that trust and try to make the motor on that. Right on. And from, yeah. so from, from, from day one, were you looking at it as a, uh, as something that you wanted to continue on from the original live action film or was there ever kind of an idea to do it as a total standalone thing? Because you obviously no, do tie it in the continuation. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. The, um, the, the, the original version of it wasn't necessarily like tied into any chronology. And at the time I was, I just remember, and it's funny because if I did it now, I'm not sure if I'd be as beholden to it, but I think that was sort of like the fun of, I, I speak of it like it's 30 freaking years ago. It's not, I know it's not like seven, but it just feels like back then, like it, it, it's one of those things, like it just, it was like, it, it was the first film. And so there's like, there's things you really care about a lot. And to me, one of those things was, it was a way for me to feel like I was doing something to serve the fans in a really weird way to acknowledge like, Hey, if I could find a narrative that somehow works within all of these, but doesn't necessarily specifically touch on all of them, but is in a reality that could, then that's, you know, could we do that? And so that was the intent going in. Um, and it was more than just basically an alcove of a bunch of, you know, artifacts in it, which again was always in there and it was always the plan. Everybody hated it because there were basically all these unique sculpts just for that one shot. But like, I just thought it was cool because I wanted to be able to see all those like in references for everybody. Um, but at the same time, it was even from a broader standpoint, like the character arcs and the backstories and stuff. But at some point it just, falls apart because then all of a sudden you have April O'Neil, you know, being a bit more of a ninja or whatever it is, right? And so it's something you have to kind of build your own reality and your own mythology, but yeah, no, the, the, the intent totally was to try to do something and, and I think it succeeded somewhat in doing it in the sense that it didn't step on the toes of anything with the mythology, but looking back, you realize that's not really fitting in with the mythology, it's more like kind of working around it and making sure you can say, oh no, it exists in the same universe. So looking right. back, that was the intent. I'm not sure if I'd do it again. Nice guys. I'll pass on the pass on the torch. Sure. All right. Uh, I just want to start off by talking about uh, animation. Particular, you started working in anim- animation industry with two D animation, which, by the way, I'm a fan of because I found it due to Hey Arnold. That was pretty cool to find out. <laughs> that, yeah, that was my first. You know, my first gig. It was just like yeah. designers, prop designers, storyboards, I mean, layout, I, even storyboard. I can't. I can't believe it's 15 years ago. My God. I feel old. <laughs> no, I know. It's really, yeah. And I remember going in there and Craig, Craig is such a good guy. I will tell you, it's so funny. He, um, he, I, oh, I came down to LA and I was basically there for two weeks in between years of my animation, um, school. And I just basically like did everything I could to like lie my way in to see every like art director in town so I could show them my portfolio. I was like, if I could just get a job, I don't have to go back to school and that would be awesome. And so, and then one one of the places I, I talked into was Nickelodeon and Craig Summers, and he liked him. He was just like a really cool dude. He just gave me a shot, and that was really neat. And then, like ten years later, ran into him on a plane and just completely remembered me. And he was just like a he was just a good, gracious dude. Like, you know. hey, Arnold tangent for everybody. There we go. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, you started with 2D animation, but for the film, it was done with CGI. Do you feel this helped with any particular aspect of the film? And conversely, do you feel that anything might have been missing by going with CGI over traditional animation? Good question. Uh, I do believe that traditional feeds into 3D all the time. I, I think that, uh, and it's fun, and, and you know, it's really funny, the difference between doing CG in 1995 and doing CG now, even just, again, like half a mile away from here in 2014, or that 
it's like as time goes on, you realize that it's all the same principle. It's all about clarity of silhouette. It's all about weight. It's all about, you know, like just clean moves. It's all about posing. It's all about, you know, and, and, and I think those principles, I forget, there's, I had a friend in video games who um, basically trained with one of the nine old men, whenever one of the nine old men was like really old. And I want to say it's Ward Kimball who he trained with. And basically he had to sit in a corner in his animation studio when he was apprenticing with this guy who was now like in the 60s or something. And, and all he did was make him bounce a rubber ball in the corner. Right. And because he said, everything you need to know about animation is in the rubber ball. And when you sit back and really look at it, that's true. But then now you get, you know, Maya or whatever that does all those in between and doesn't make you do the work. And I know it, it, you, I, you end up sounding like an old fart at some point, like saying like kids these days. But there's something to that that if they don't learn that, their career becomes all about being directed by people who are trying to make them get back to what should have been the core part of what they learned how to do in the first place. You know, So to that point, yeah, I, I totally think that the traditional influences the treating. And then, and, and to whether or not it'd be better in traditional, I think at the time, uh, either could, either would work for me personally, knowing the marketplace, I don't, and it, we're even dealing with this with like other people or some people are upset that, you know, that it's not the 2D render like the game, but, and, and that's a valid point, but at the same time, even regardless of how we do it, the reality that there's a business and it's not even my decision, but I know the people that are putting like 20, 30 plus million dollars into these things that they have to know that they're going to recoup their investment. And to them, they know that any kid under 10 is going to be a hard sell on something currently that is 3d and it's not right. And it shouldn't be that way. And I don't agree with it. And kids do like it, but at the same time, they're just not willing to make the risk. So I think, I think a Ninja Turtles movie and like a really nicely sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, got the guys to do like Bebop or whatever, like doing a style like that or a Madhouse Ninja Turtles movie would be like insane. That would be so great. So, and I think people, and again, like the Michael Bay thing, you can totally live in any medium, I think. So. I understand what you're saying. I, I agree on that. I've always been a fan of traditional animation myself. Yep. I uh, agree, and I still think it's just, it's, it's just, it's graphic, and especially in talking about comic book groups. It's just, you know, it's perfect. Although I'm not opposed to CGI either because I watched a reboot back in the day, the first CG TV series ever. So, you know, things can always look always look worse. Yeah. No, they always could. They always could. And it just comes down to whatever. Like, all, all you want is, like, you just don't want something to look cheap. And cheap doesn't mean that you have to have a bunch of money in it. It's just whenever people just, like, crap stuff out like that. And that, that's what falls apart. It's not like all CG is bad for CG. It's just the people who just don't know what they're doing. Or they just, like, present it in a horrible way that you're like, oh, dude, you're just ruining it for everybody else. Now everybody thinks it has to look like that, you know, and, and that kind of thing. You really need your own like, style. No, exactly, right? And so, and that's sort of the thing that, like, as a tangent to, like, the ratchet and the slice stuff that we're doing, is that stuff's being done at such a price point that, like, especially feature animation, like, you can't put a stamp or a style on CG animation because for some, there's so much money involved in these things, and there's, it's such an arduous process that, like, you, you can't put a style. It's almost impossible. That's where, like, everything comes out. And, like, and the nut job is great. I get that everyone's going to laugh, and it's all cool, but the nut job's just like any other movie. It, there's nothing that you look at, you're like, oh my God, that's so that movie, right? And whereas like live action, 
there's like a million movies like that. You just go like that looks different than that, and Inception looks different than this small budget thing over here, and the medium budget thing looks different than the horror flick over here. And for some reason, just because it's CG or it's animated, they all have to have that same sort of like boring, lit by light at noon crap CG look, right? And and it's ridiculous. So that's the thing that attracted me to the flying ratchet thing is that there it's a small enough production that you can actually have a voice in that world and you can actually do a style and that's sort of the thing that you know I get turned on by uh, just at least in an animation standpoint. You know? uh, for my next question, that was a really opinionated rant. That was great. I appreciated it. <laughs> uh, from conception to finished product, there's often scenes that are pulled or shortened for one reason or another, be it time, money, or just changing the script. Were there any scenes early on that had to be shortened or pulled that you would have liked to have kept in? Absolutely. Um, let's see. Uh, well, I mean, most of them were on. It's funny because even whenever, after Harvey came on, like, we were cutting, like, rendered scenes, like, which is, like, the most... That's the most expensive cutting room floor ever. When you're in CG, like if you're cutting stuff that's lit, like you're cutting big money at that point. But um, there was, I remember there was a training sequence that I thought was really fun because it really set up whenever Leo came back. They went out for training and it was a nice sort of, there's the scene where he comes back in the middle of the night and everybody's there and he has this conversation with his dad and that's the way it was basically re-edited. But the, the idea was that he did that and then that led into a sequence right afterward where they were basically out and doing their training and it was before the whole like Bigfoot fight in the I-Beam building. And it wasn't just that it was like a fun running on rooftop sequence because I wanted to do something as well and that's the reason why we did the, tre- the teaser trailer. Uh, because the teaser trailer, the first theatrical one, is actually a remake of the sales trailer that we did like a year and a half earlier. Andrew probably knows that, but um, I've seen that, that early version of it. But the idea that um, that yeah, that you could run around and then you could actually basically just like have that fun, but at the same time it was so character driven and it was a really nice like, hey, guess what? Like Leo comes back because I love the idea of like a guy coming back from college, and that was always the analogy for Leo that he was coming back from college and and you know, your bedroom's smaller when you get home and how do you reconcile coming back? And there's, there's all these additional layers that, you know, that were originally put in there that this is one of those things that just felt like in its original inception, it was like, you know, that was where it was headed. So that was my next. All right. Uh, this, this one's for a friend, uh, Andrew, but, uh, you would, uh, if you didn't want to take all the questions, but, uh, I do agree with this one. Uh, <laughs> What universe does your TMNT movie fit into? I mean, Peter Laird said it exists in its own, but you want a record interview saying it was existed in a loose continuity with the first two films, yet we see Walker's hat from the third film and the end of the trophy room, too. Uh, what's the final word on that? Uh, final word was that it was intended to try to fit in with the first two. The third one's like a really hard one to fit in, and that helmet that went in from the third was an add-in, but, uh, like, admittedly, I mean, like, there's not more to that than what that is, I think, in terms of, like, how does this fit into, you know, part three, which is, I mean, it's a pretty obscure, not obscure, it's an off-the-beaten path, and if we have a movie that's just set in, like, New York, I don't know how you tie in the third one. But, um, or just at least, like, in, for the purposes of the fourth one, right? And so, and then maybe that, that was that was sort of one of the challenges of it. But to me, it was always, I was trying to get something that didn't betray the origin story that we know from the first movie. That to me was like the whole thing. And, and even like I bought that April would go away and become stronger and she would get, get interested in martial arts because of this. And there was like more, there was more supporting that originally, which was interesting about just how she'd gone on and changed the idea. And, and what was really funny is, um, 
you look at like the KC Maple relationship, speaking back to your other point about like things, things that you, you, you missed, there was the whole KC Maple relationship, which was just, I thought, I, I was just so interested in, in their non-ability to speak and their crossroads and their relationship and this idea that it, it's sort of like embracing the nature of who you are and, and Casey knowing that he had to do this. And there was so much more and she hated that he did it. And we had this, we had this speech that Casey gave giraffe on top of the rooftop and it's actually still have it animated. And I thought like about a year ago, we dug it up where he just talks about how, I, I wish I could stop doing this and I, I know that what I am and what I do doesn't make April happy and I love April but regardless I have to be who I am and I don't know how to do that and the thing is and he was saying this to Raph right and he was like and the thing is is like I know she knows and she knows that I know that she knows and it was like this, it was this, this great sort of like working class speech that the original like Casey like the actor that we had in there it was it was so it was just a great it was just a great heartfelt speech about how he was just trying really hard just to make amends and, and the whole thing is that then tied together with Raph and Raph finding his you know grander scheme of what he wanted out of his adventure and, and out of his life and and this whole because because really like the the the, the night watches the, the the night watches is the watcher is just like a it was is a metaphor for like just finding who you are and, and you know what you're supposed to be. That, that sounds so pompous. It's a metaphor too, but it's but it's kind of true. Just the idea of, and the whole point of that was like paralleling those two guys, and so it was just something that I just really missed. So again, added layer and where it fit into that whole thing. And then again, it was one of those things where their relationship, and then saying something more with their relationship, and so fitting it into that sort of first two movies. Right. Uh... Well, like I was, like we were talking about with the, uh, little bits of scenes where we recognized some elements of the past movies that we saw briefly, uh, I was curious if you had any strong feelings one way or another to, uh, Saban's The Next Mutation live action series. I don't have any specific things. The only thing I, I have is the wonderful thought in my head of the look on Peter Laird's face when he heard there was a female turtle. That's all I have. And that's more of a retrospective <laughs> thing and nothing in real time. And that's it, because that would have been really funny. And I can only imagine what that would have been like. So anyway, and it's I just, think, that's it. I, I think, I think again, it speaks to the strength of it that you, you I, th- I, think it another be, one. Yeah. I think it would be not unlike those reaction videos to the, the two girls, one cup you see on YouTube. <laughs> I know. I swear to God. I think that it is. It's the crew that's the two girls, one cup reaction. Totally Every time right. someone he mentions he's like, really? Like, is that seriously a pink <laughs> bandana? And he would kind of like squint and like lean forward. And then he'd like kind of recoil in horror when he would hear that it's like actually named after like Venus de Milo, you know? And I'm just, I, I could totally see. Kevin Eastman had more That would be a fun thing to storyboard. Uh, that's it for me for questions. Uh, it was fun talking to you. Uh, I'll pass the reins, as it were. Cool. Well, hi. I guess I'm up next. How are hey. you doing? Are, are we boring Fantastic. you to tears yet? <laughs> Not a, no, I was going to actually say the opposite. Oh, awesome. So I have to I have to get the, the fangirl, fanboyish gushing out of my way um, before we do anything. The, the voice cast you had for your movie was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and, and to be quite on, I've loved the turtles. I was what junior high, you know, I'm a huge fan. Your movie is the, the definition of Leonardo for me. I've never understood that character, but, uh, 
just seriously, not even blowing smoke or anything. I've been waiting my entire fan life for that rooftop fight scene and the kitchen scene. So, so thank you. That I have gotten all my fango gushing out. (laughs) That's cool. I'll tell you something about the rooftop scene, especially if you're interested. Um, So, the very first time we did the whole voice record for the turtles, we brought all of those four guys into one room, and it was. James Arnold Taylor and Nolan North and Mikey Kelly and Mitchell Whitfield and Donnie. And it was really important that we four-walled the room, which means you basically turn on all the mics and you have four guys sitting around. And it was like having like Huey, Dewey, and Louie, but like a foursome, like inside the booth. They just started immediately acting like brothers and their voices were oh, so natural. It was beautiful. And, and, and they had this great way of like, and I'm such a fan of, um, I hate animation. Animation has this way of taking a script and then breaking it down line by line. You have to read every line three times every time you do something. But we did this thing where we just had scenes and I just wanted to do live action kind of like concept where you just act the scene and you react to the other person's line and we just get it all in real time. Anyway, long story short, we go ahead a year and a half later and then Harvey Weinstein. And so, and so anyway, the highlight of one of those records was Leo and Rasty because every time one of them said a line, the other guy ratcheted it up and then the other guy boosted it up from there and they were really feeling each other's emotion, right? And so, cut to a year and a half later, whenever Weinstein comes in, and they bring in the guys from Hoodwinked because they know better and all this other stuff. And we get a reading that just sounds like a bad Saturday morning cartoon. So we're actually on the mix floor and all this, like the occupation by the studio, and we're watching the scene, and I am so bummed because I know that the original dialogue was like that much better. I was just so, I'm such a fan of it, that basically all the executives left for lunch, and we slammed all of the original dialogue back in from the very <laughs> first day that we recorded the Ninja Turtles. And so when you hear that dialogue between Leon and Raph, that's the original dialogue we recorded on day one. And so, yeah. and if anybody's well, listening to that, screw they should have been there. They should have been to lunch when I'm there. Well played. Well played. There you go. All right, sorry, there we go. I'm glad you like it. That's cool. So I have to admit that mm-hmm. I actually know very little about what a director does, just kind of in general. And so a director in an animated movie, that's a whole different ball of wax. So were you there during all of the voice recording? Uh, yeah, I was actually for that. Um, that's so I, awesome. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was, no, it's really cool. And and it's so funny because there's other people that like work in animation that don't do that. Mm-hmm. And what was really funny is I think changing as a director is like I, I was, and I, I make fun of those people in animation who broke it down like one line at a time. And I do it, but I should also admit that I was one of those people. And I would say Turtles was the one time that I started realizing that things were better whenever you don't do lines in isolation. That It's almost like people. Like you really suck when you're by yourself, but you're really interesting when you're with somebody else. And so it's the same thing with acting, you know? And so, especially in animation, people just forget that because everything gets so sterilized and brought down to, like, single lines and everything. And so, um, yeah, and, and, and so at the same time, it, it, that was around the time they started learning. And then, and then after that, I went and did, like, a live-action flick. And then after that, then I went up and worked at Lucasfilm, where we were really into... And that was probably the first time I was really embracing, just, like, getting into a booth and acting against actors and with actors, like, you know, like whoever was in the booth kind of thing. So that, to me, is, like, the most fun part of the whole thing. It's just, like, in terms of just, like, recording the voices and just getting I mean, that's the seed of your performance, you know, so... Acting. Well, no, it's, it's amazing that, I mean, you... You got to work with Captain America, and you also got to work with Mako, and I'd kind of like to ask what that was like, because hands down, I think him as 
Master Splinter was probably some of the best. I mean, all of your your casting decisions were fantastic. The voice cast, again, was just absolutely phenomenal, but I believe it was the last film that Mako worked on. Is that is that right? I believe that was his farewell performance. Mm-hmm. It was. He was awesome. He was... Um, it was funny. He was... Uh, that was that was he was our top choice like from day one. Somebody had thrown up Pat Marie at one point, um, and I think somebody had reached out and he just refused to talk to anybody. But it was at the same time we were reaching out to uh, to Marco, and and I w- I didn't know if we would get him, and I didn't know if people would sign off him. But like to me, I mean, it was God, it's Conan the Destroyer, like it just, all of those movies are just like he's so he's so good. And so we're there at the sound recording studio, and. Uh, and I went, I was, I, and it was so funny, this is, you know, blue for a second. Um, I was in the bathroom at the sound studio and I was, I, and I was washing my hands and then lo and behold, like Mako comes in. And that's how I meet Mako for the first time as he's washing his hands. <laughs> and, um, and, and he was so cordial and like he would have like completely just grabbed my hand and shook it out. I know. Like, and he was, and he was just, he was just like a really cool dude. And what was really funny is normally like voice acting, you go for, you know, like four hours maybe and people get like really super shredded. And eventually your voice just can't take it. Because even though you do four hours in a live action set, you're maybe acting for like, what, like 45 minutes, maybe a little bit. And when it comes to voice acting, like you're going for the full four hours. And so, uh, and you know, that's why like unions are like, it's a four hour shift and then you come back the next day, especially for voice acting. And but Mako, we did like six or seven. And all he needed was just basically just to stop and take like a cigarette break every like 45 minutes or and he would go and do that. And so then it, what was what was crazy is that whenever we found out that he had passed away, we didn't even know that he was sick. But it turns out whenever he actually came and did his voice records that he was like undergoing treatment and he was still and he was sick at that time. And that dude just like just plowed through it. And so you're like, I mean, that's fantastic. And and, and he just and his voice is so good and his voice is so so paternal I thought and it just didn't sound like it was like some white dude trying to sound like he was Asian and it just it just sounded it was just I just I did there's something about that voice that I just really gravitated to and there's so there's a scene where he walks in and he's like humming to himself I think as well um something I think it might be going into the where he tells a line about like how I'm gonna want to go watch my stories or something and he uh and we needed a song and we were like, Can you just be humming something? You didn't know what to do. So he actually hummed a lullaby that his mom used to sing in. And so when you listen to that, this is a humming. But that actually that the thing that he's humming to himself is a Japanese lullaby that his mom used to sing to when he was a kid. So there you go. Big knock that, that is the most amazing segue because I was just about to ask you that. Was I had I had heard I had heard elsewhere that 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 was just something that he had kind of extemporaneously began singing. And, and so I was going to ask for confirmation. And my last question, I'm not even kidding was, um, you know, there's a, the, the story tradition in animation of putting, you know, your friends in or putting something hidden in the background or, or whatnot, any, any sort of special Easter egg like thing that, that when people, when they're done listening to this, and I guarantee you anyone listening to this is going to go and pull that DVD out and watch this movie again, um, is there anything they, that someone with keen eyes should be looking for? You know, I'll be honest, five years ago, I'd be in Atlanta, like right away. Just, I mean, because at the time, of course, you, I would say look at look at billboards. Every billboard probably references somebody in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, on the film crew. Uh, the, there's a, there's a KMRG, um, uh, KMRG uh, radio station call-out letters for K-Mirage. 
Uh, those guys did a did a. I was apparently very overweight at the time for being the diner page. I didn't even realize they were me, but that's apparently supposed to be me. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, there's uh, God. You know, it's. I'll shout out later in a second if I remember anything else. I'm trying to think, but there's this. I mean, it's one of those things. I just I like that detail. I like that, and it's not so much like spelling things out in the you know effects whenever it happens. But I just like you know if you're going to do a number. If I'm going to do a telephone number, and if I can do the four digits being the birth date of Peter Laird or Kevin Eastman, like, why not? Like, you get to put a number so you need to either mean something. And if somebody really wants to do the work, so I almost guarantee, especially, like, the stuff I'm doing now might not have that level, like, because it's like, how much work do you really need to put into that? But at the same time, back then, if I did do it, it's probably all of the perspective. All right, and my my final question because we've kind of danced around the, the voice cast and everything. I need to ask about Kevin Smith. <laughs> How did you get Kevin yeah. Smith involved? Was he was he chomping at the bit to be in a Ninja Turtle movie? I mean, the man is grand high poobah of geeks, so it wouldn't surprise me. You know, no, it's it's true. Like he was. It's, it's funny because especially with all of like well, the quote unquote name actors, I mean, that was definitely something that like coming from, because I mean, it was like a low budget movie. So we couldn't have the money for these type of actors when we were doing it at the beginning. And so we had, we had that them as final voices. We had like, like, and we use like every big pro and like in the voiceover community. And it's really like, it was really, I mean, specifically cast them. And it was like John DiMaggio, the voice of Bender was actually Winters before, you know, we put in Patrick Stewart's voice. And really? And so, um, yeah, no, 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 it was, it was fantastic. Anyway. And so, um, so one of those things, because he does a lot of work with Harvey is because Harvey comes in and he's like, oh, I'll get you Morgan Freeman, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just what Harvey does. And so he came in and he was like, I'm going to put a bunch of stars in your movie. And so he comes in and says, you can get Kevin Smith. And I'm like, that's really great. Because actually they were originally speaking to Kevin and they were trying to get him in to try to work and uh, come in and, and talk story and kind of like talk like globally, like from like, because the studio said like, hey, you should talk to this person and see what they think and whatever. So that didn't work out with Kevin, but he came in just to do like, you know, whatever those were, like three or four lines. Uh, and so when he came in, what was fun is because that scene that he did as a diner cook, goes right into the Leo Rath fight. And so he just came in and there was Luke, but then whenever they finished the last line, they kept it playing, and he started seeing it go into, like, the fight and the chase, and they turned it off, and he was like, no, 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 put it back down, put it back down. <laughs> and we just, we just sat there and we watched it together. He was like, dude, this is pretty freaking cool. <laughs> like, it, was, it, was a, it was a fun little moment. So he really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, I think that kind of taps me out. Again, thank you so much for for coming and talking with us and uh no, thank you. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Okay, well I guess I'm up. Uh hi Kevin, my name's Jeffrey. I'm I uh, currently live in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It's uh, not far from Harrisburg. In fact, I was just in Harrisburg today. I had a little uh, hospital appointment. They had to give me a heart catheterization and I'm I'm nursing my wounds now, but um I'm pretty much okay. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for thanks. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Kevin. Okay. Yeah. I was really, I was really hoping. I was really looking forward to this. So um, well, my first thing is um, we were talking about little uh, little Easter egg stuff before, and I just it made me wonder um, the Stone Soldiers in the movie, they they weren't by any chance based off a general track from from the original cartoon, were they? No, you know what they weren't. They were um, again. Uh, Pete was like a huge um, Aztec fan, 
and just Mayan cultures and all that kind of stuff. And so I sort of knew, and again, I know there's like stories about like what the original, there was an original outline where he was, we were really fascinated with like the terracotta army from China and like trying to bring back all these, like it was always about resurrecting an army or something. And so we had this thing where originally underneath Winter's Tower where these like catacombs that just like went down for like, you know, like, like a mile underneath that. We just filled with these terracotta warriors that he had been trying to amass all the collection of these things. And yeah, so it translated eventually to these four generals. And again, the parallel was trying to draw the, the, you know, again, it got translated to a very ham-fisted way in, in spots there, but the idea that it's like, you know, four brothers and four generals and kind of thing. But uh, they were all basically just meant to be sort of like elemental dudes. And uh, and it was funny because they were actually like the temp name, like Aguila and Gata. Like, because it's not. It's like, it's like General Cat. And general eagle. Like, I mean, there's nothing really that special about it. But sometimes you put out like test teams, and they just stick. And that's just kind of what happened because nobody spent the time to think of anything better. And I wish I would love to say that it was like so. Like, oh no, it was a perfect name for it. But it's worked and it did its trick, and so we moved on. So no, it's not wasn't really uh, based on anything. Okay. Well, uh, my next question is: um, I remember around the time uh, Playmates was toying around with um, some ideas for, like, um, action figures of characters just out of the blue, like, um, based off of stuff that wasn't used in the movie. Like, there was, like, this little idea for a side story where Leonardo, while he was in the jungle, he met up with Jaguar, who is a character from the Archie comics. I don't know how familiar you are with the Archie comics, but there was this whole, there was this whole, um, uh... No, yeah, yeah, no, no, And I thought... I would have loved to have seen Jaguar and Dreadman. Dreadman was one of my favorite characters. Like, um, did the studio give you any ideas? For, I mean, did, were you given like ideas for those characters at all? No, I mean, no, it wasn't really. And it's funny, like anything that really came from the Playmates universe really wasn't that much of a part of it. They were definitely more just like part of like. And then when they did take over, they did obviously and. In a huge way, but uh, no, it wasn't anything part. Like there was no, I guess, like playmates lore, I guess, to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know, uh, yeah, I know there were a lot of Minimal fans who really wanted to see that Jaguar action figure. I saw, you know, we've seen pictures of it. it looks really, it looks really pretty cool. But we were really bummed out when it got canceled. But um, anyway, um, uh, for I guess for my final question, um, well, we're talking a lot about uh. We're talking a lot about um. Well, this is kind of funny. Like yeah, like uh, we're talking about voice actors, and it's just funny to me because like I, I there's a lot of really interesting um connections because um because like you, you had you had um Buffy Sarah Michelle Gellar play April, and one of her co-stars on Buffy was Allison Hannigan. And she worked, and uh, she co-starred with Jason Biggs in the American Pie movies, and now he's the voice of Leonardo. Exactly. Uh, so it's like you know, there, I was, there is some sort of like Matrix glitch somewhere, somewhere it seems like you know, and then yeah. and it all ends up with like two of the Goonies being back on the TV series somehow. I guess. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. One more. Thing. Yeah. And, um, and on a little tangent, I remember you guys were talking about stuff from the third movie. I did. I loved it. I loved the scene of the scepter in that one case. Yeah, that was, that's like one of my favorite moments. Uh, Which 
Yeah. I mean, even though even though the third movie was kind of lackluster in the trophy room. Yeah. It always seemed kind of harmless to me. Like, like, like Turtles 1 and 2 are, are probably the better quality movies right. than 3, but it, it almost seems like harmless to, like, to, to you know, what, whether you include 3 or not. It's like, eh, you might as well at this point. It's, no, it seems like, yeah, it seems like you're being mean if you don't include 3, because at the end of the day, 3, three was made for whatever reasons it had to be right, made, and yeah. I still think it's a fun movie, and it's still, I, it's still, it does what it's supposed to do. So, you know, so how could you not? So I think, yeah, it was probably like, it shouldn't, yeah, it wasn't like an accident it was in there. It was like, of course, it just felt wrong not to include it. I mean, there could almost be a case made. I mean, not that anyone should be so inclined, but one could almost be like, well, even the next mutation, like maybe Venus left one day and, you know, there's her bandana there in the trophy room, but no, let's not do all that. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've always wanted I've always wanted to see Mono Gecko in a movie, but uh, I, I guess I guess we'd have a better chance of seeing Leatherhead and Rat King. Oh, but and, uh, this is actually kind of funny. Uh, before, uh, um... Just a couple years before you, before your movie came out, I, I was saying to myself, I would love to see Jason Mewes play the Rat King. Here's <laughs> a funny dude. Yeah, right. well, that's enough for me. Yeah. I'll pass it on to the next person. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's me, Josh, again, um, the host, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anywho, uh, so yeah, a lot of really interesting questions so far. In fact, one of the ones I was going to ask has already been asked, so we'll kind of switch it up a little bit. Um, so originally you said uh, that uh, Patrick Stewart's part was going to be played by John DiMaggio, correct? Yep. Okay, so so how did that change up? How did you get Patrick Stewart? Uh, we got Patrick Stewart because Harvey Weinstein got involved, basically. I mean, it was one of those things where we had a great voice cast, and it worked perfectly, and everything was great. And then people come along who want to invest, you know, tens of millions of dollars in it. And they say, we need to have these names in it. And none of them are a bad idea. And they were all fantastic. And they would have been, and they were all people that we cast. It wasn't like, Hey, you're putting her in that. It was like, Hey, who can we find in this list that we need in order to put our money? in? it's just like, it's just the business part of the show part. You okay, know? So, it, it just, yeah. So, so that might be the uh, same thing with like April and Casey's casting, or was that before the millions of dollars got shoved into it? <laughs> no, it's all part of like the general, like you know, because it's funny because when it's low budget, you don't have time to like when it's when it's independent, you don't have time to like really like develop these things. You just basically say this is what we're doing and we're doing it. So whenever we were animating Casey speaking, we were animating into this original voice that we have. And so then, you know, then studios come along and then they say they want to have something that they can put on a poster that they can, you know, like go out and put on the DVD or whatever, which I get it. And it's completely cool. And, and then so we did it and I think we got a really good cast for who they were. I still feel like we really cast the type really well. And so, yeah, it was, you know, awesome. Awesome. So, and also in, in regards to the cast and stuff like that, at any point in the process, uh, did you ever consider maybe casting some of the uh, voices from maybe the previous Turtle movies, like Corey Feldman or it, whatever? Uh, I'm not, not the movie. It was funny because I remember Corey, uh, Corey was, we, we talked to Corey's people a couple times, but there was just nothing in our movie that worked for it, you know, but not to get him to do a voice of a turtle, but we're trying to find something else. And just, and it was, and I remember especially when we were like weighing all the voices, especially because I mean, 
all of the all the turtle voices we had were all voice actors, and so it wasn't like it was like oh we have to put this person in because they're the biggest. Even though most of those guys are like really huge voice actors, it wasn't anything about that. And so it was always about like balancing the voices and how this voice plays against that. And I remember specifically with Corey that it wasn't anything against him. It was like oh, I remember just honestly just going like what the hell? Let's just listen to it and see what happens. And it just didn't balance out. It was just one of the things that like, you just listen to it, and it's it's not about his voice, but it's about the other voices. And, um, so there was that, and um, and then I remember we also uh, we we talked to Rob a little bit too, and Rob Paulson came in and 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 did some editing as well, and he just did a great job. And again, it was like a balancing act. It was like, how do they feel, and do they, you know, it's a whole thing. So there's there's always a ton of people that you talk to. Right? Okay, awesome. And then and then one more kind of an unrelated question. Um, uh, the the uh, games that came out as kind of you know marketing and product and whatnot for this movie uh, did uh, of, of various qualities and whatnot um, did uh, did anybody from the studio yourself included like have anything to do with direct input on that game or were the developers just given material yeah. and said go. No, the Ubisoft game. They can, what was really funny is that we were in the middle of it. So we had like we had we had McDonald's Happy Meal people coming in and talking to us. We had Ubisoft gave us a dev kit as they were wrapping up levels, and so I had a dev kit in my office, and it was just basically a standing thing that people could sit there and play when they would come in, and we were just sort of. And again, it was like the Prince of Persia engine. I think they poured it over. Um, the Prince of Persia engine they poured it over for the game so I remember it was sort of like just playing that mechanic and seeing it drop in and so yeah that was really fun and especially when you look at like the video game it's funny because my again my five year old discovered it this past Christmas and he just loves just like he just loves like whacking people with nunchucks I don't know it's again a universal thing and so uh, they uh, and so and I was, when I was watching it I was like really surprised like at how faithful they were to the, to the movie it was like really kind of crazy and so yeah no that was totally like we were all about being really open with um, with all the developers of everything that we were doing to make sure that we should have that unity across the board of you know what the problem. Cool, cool. Did you have a? Uh, did you get any experience with uh, the Game Boy Advance version? Like that one was like uh, kind of a favorite amongst no, people I who were not. really no, into the arcade games. No, totally. We didn't get any into that, but I do like that part. But I thought it was really fun. Yeah, cool. No, that was that was pretty much like uh, amongst people who like grew up with like you know turtles and time and all that stuff. Like that was just yeah. you know, and myself included. Like I liked the Prince of Persia kind of one, but like the the Game Boy one, especially since it was portable, I could take it anywhere. Like that was probably the one I played yeah. the most. Um, no. But yeah, uh, that that's it uh, from uh, from me. I think I think we're pretty much out of questions. Um, do, awesome. do you have anything else uh, you want to throw out there? Anything else you want to say or elaborate on before? No, uh, I gotta before be honest, wrap it up. It's, it's, no, it, it's really cool to talk to everybody, and, and the fact that the, I, mean, I I tell you, it's not just from me knowing like it, that crew that we did turtles with has existed with me up until even now. I've got the same ones working with me in spots on like Ratchet and eventually Sly as well, and even the Rikas, the recent thing we did Lucas, and and, uh, and what I love about this stuff is that I love that they get to know that people really care about it, which is like really kind of cool because like there's a lot of people who pour like a lot of a lot of work into that so I'm just glad you guys recognize it that's really cool thank you that's cool yeah you're yeah. welcome like we're, we're really glad to have you and whatnot I'm glad that you know Andrew got a hold of you and got this all hooked absolutely. up and everything it's it's absolutely fantastic uh, any any recent uh, productions or anything that you want to plug before you get out of here 
No, I'm good. I, I, I think that whole Sly Cooper thing is just jumping all over the place right now, so I'll let that do its own thing. I'm just glad that you guys wanted to talk turtles, and if you want to do it again, just let me know. Oh, yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll definitely uh, keep that uh, <laughs> We'll definitely keep that in mind to get you back on here and drill you with more questions. All right. <sighs> well, anyway, it was absolutely wonderful talking to you and listening to your stories tonight and whatnot. Thank you. Hey, how about we throw around some random thoughts about the uh, new movie? Let's do that. Yeah, I I, I, I saw something on the Technodrome, people arguing back and forth about the lips and how they're absolutely necessary in order to make CG turtles in live action in any way, shape, or form able to be realistically understood or something. I kind of of agreed. And yet, hello, last movie, but... No, no, it's it's fucking cyber being like, this is clearly for the fangirls. And I'm like, yeah, because what the turtles look like right now... That's totally geared for the female gaze. Like, yeah, that's how we want all of our male characters to look like. That's like saying professional wrestling is geared towards women. Like, it's not. Stop. Someone They wanted to put more motion capture in so that they could get the actors in their faces. And that's pretty much it. Wrestling is yeah. geared towards 12-year-old boys like me. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I, still don't, I, just, I still don't understand why that's a bad thing, though. What do you mean? What, to, yeah, to, to, I, I, I don't see get, it as a bad. Thing. Yeah, like what to get the get the actors' faces into the, and not even to say that that they're recognizable in terms of like some sort of billable thing. It's like, oh yeah, look, it looks like Robert Downey Jr. So now we can pay him more. But it's like, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't see why it's a bad thing to put more um, emoting character into a face, regardless of whether it looks that's like. like I, I don't think it's because bad because it I, that's, makes, that's not the issue. I, I don't it to me, that's not the issue. Feel weird in their private places. That's the problem. Oh god, they should <laughs> fucking they should fucking get a life. I mean, my jock's wiggling. Gay. No, I I just think that you know, hey, you know looking I'm... lips on a turtle is kind of weird looking, and it looks less weird on the actual poster than it did on that crappy Halloween costume. You, you, you know, that, that I, but it was and, just and again we and again we don't even know if like you know this is going to probably it, it probably is going to actually use the Fred Wolf origin where they do actually have human DNA. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of so, have to say, looking at it, uh, one of the important things to think about is uh, this is prob- this is probably mostly fan reaction, you know. It's it's like it's like it's it's like the initial shock when you see it. It's like you're, you're more surprised than really offended at first. It's just like it's gonna take people a while to settle well, down and get comfortable. It has. It's very unfortunately placed in the uncanny valley. Is the problem? Hmm. That's all. The um, only thing uncanny is the X Men. It's gonna be like the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, or even like the Last Turtles movie. Like everyone's like, "Oh my god, this is awesome! This is awesome! We were wrong!" And then like a few months pass, and it's like, ah. Was that as good as? Uh, well, you know what? That was that was kind of not that. You know, you know the funny thing that, that sucks. It, that sucks. Andrew, the funny thing is, that you, the funny thing is that you say that. I find that with like most of the new movies that are out these days, I'm like, oh, you know, this is, yeah. you know, this is gonna be awesome. Yeah, it's really yeah. awesome when I go watch it, and then they're like, wait a second, let's wait a few months and it, see how you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, all, it's all shine, no content. Yeah. But what, are you expecting anything more out of this? Like, though, really? I I expect it to be if. To be quite honest, I intend to go to this movie as fucked up as humanly possible. And if I can oh, get yes. through the, it should absolutely be. If I can it should be Turtles the, Forever. If I can get through the, the entire <laughs> movie without looking at my watch once, then I will consider the movie a success. That's all I need is while here's, while messed up, not looking we, at my watch. Here's what we do. Twenty Karen. seconds in. How long is this movie? Karen, 
I, I fly to Boston, go drink for drink. We go to the theater because that's the only way I'm gonna fucking see this thing. So that's, you, that's, if you want to come out, you are more than welcome be. to. But you know, I'm gonna hound you over the fact that you still owe me money. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, you can always come down here if you want. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll watch. I'll watch you make a drunkard fool of yourself. Pleasure, man. It's my pleasure. Yeah, if you, awesome, if you, thank you so much. Oh, yes. Oh, I was I was gonna say if you ever find yourself at like the San Diego Comic Con or New York Comic Con, seriously, we will buy you beer. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> shots, I, shots. Specifically sir. in shots. San Diego. I don't live too far from there, so yes. come drink a beer with me in San Diego. Hey, I uh, you will drink for free, man. I appreciate that. They're talking about going down <laughs> for the these new movies and so if we do. You just you just shoot me that sign from the audience, and we will meet at like Big Flats Resort or something. It's like, for a shot like a, absolutely, it's like the bat uh, signal, but there. it's like I've a martini there. glass. Is that is that what we're working <laughs> with now? Just bring a bottle. Oh, that's awesome. in the parking lot. Oh, sh- sh- who, who do you think you're talking to, man? We got flasks going around the co- convention, man. We'll st- we'll stand next to those people that say the comic books are a sin, and you know have a few drinks. <laughs> yeah, you uh, won't be able oh, to miss those them. guys. Yeah. After I mentioned G- after I mentioned uh, Jason Muse's Rat King, I just had this picture in my head of Rat King and Leadhead dressed as Jay and Silent Bob. Huh. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I my my old username on the Technodrome, uh, Gunga Snooch, that was actually uh, based on like when Kevin Smith got a part. They said that Jason Muse, like they didn't have a part left for him to actually get but he did want to get on there i i had this funny image of him dressed as like uh, as like his character jay dressed as casey jones and huh. so yeah that's where that came from that could almost work i could see that working yeah like not i mean not like a super serious interpretation of him but you know something just fun crazy guy yelling out yelling out like sound too unlike him on the nickelodeon show. no 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 what yeah, you that, need to do would... now is write that shit down on a piece of paper and mail it to yourself and when michael bay does it you can claim to have had the idea first That so. Technodrome place is a scary place now. I can't go there anymore. It is a den of scum and villainy. It's very I actually angry. posted a couple of times recently, but generally, I, I don't know if... I don't think I really ever went back and looked at if anyone responded certainly, to me or not. Certainly, if you're going there to be uplifted, you, you, will, you will walk away unhappy. And yeah. you, will, maybe you, will walk walk away. you will walk away with a noose. But I don't really want to go to a forum because, like, the only two I could because, like, uh, Mikey's TMNT forum that's been dead for a long time, and that's where I used to go. Um, the Technodrome is not oh, the uplifting place. I was going to say not the uplifting place that I would like it to be. Uh, well, I feel like that's that's I don't know. I'm, I'm more of the mind that it's less. Uh... Less indicative of the forum itself, it's more of like how yeah, the advice of the fandom is itself. You know, that, that, so, that, that might, I mean, that's that the might thing be the they, case too. Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't give up on the place. 
um, yeah. is is I just I refuse to let them win. <laughs> They're horrible everywhere, I, not just there. Uh, last year, I tweeted I tweeted Hair Strong Greg Sipes because I'm a big Teen Titans fan. I showed them a picture of from the comics of Raven and their characters, Raven and Beast Boy kissing. And I said, every time I watch Teen Titans, I want that to happen. And Tara Strong responded, Tara Strong responded back with, um, a picture of herself getting cozy with Greg Sipes. <laughs> <laughs>